Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degania on Talk Show. It is Monday, May 13th, I'm sorry, Friday, May 13th, 2011, and this is Matthew Chapter 5. I, 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 um, I really don't plan to take seven months on the Gospel of Matthew, but at the rate I'm going, that's how long it's going to take. It's not... It's it's just that I don't want to rush the material. Tonight we will probably only treat Matthew chapter five. I, I think it's important to um, to, to um, elucidate and as much as I can covering these gospels, rather than rush through it and and um, uh, leave out a lot of things that many people might feel important that I think are trite or. or um, Miss things that 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 really need to be discussed that I don't realize need to be discussed. So, so I'd like to discuss all that I can about each chapter in Matthew. Last week, discussing Matthew chapter four, we saw that the devil who tempted Christ in the desert certainly need not have been some spiritual demon, as it is usually perceived, but may very well have been a real and living person. What, which is the position that I would certainly, um, that, that's the way I see it. One of the descendants of the seed of the serpent, as scripture shows in many places, are actually devils in the flesh. We also saw last week, and, and, and I, I spent much more time on it than I probably should have, but we also saw in a rather long and winding discourse that the prophecy concerning Galilee of the Gentiles actually refers to the region of the nations. Galilee meaning a region or a circuit. The region of the nations of the long-dispersed Israelites. For they are the people sitting in darkness. In order to substantiate this claim, I would like to read here from Isaiah chapter 49 in order to introduce Matthew chapter 5. The Jews do everything that they can to belittle these last 25 chapters of the book of Isaiah. Even claiming that some other Isaiah besides the ancient prophet had written them, or, or they're a, well, well, a forgery, or they were written late. Christ quotes from these last 25 chapters of Isaiah quite frequently. And he attributes them to Isaiah the prophet. The Jews despise these chapters because these chapters are written to the real children of Israel of the early dispersions, none of whom were ever known as Jews. These chapters also help prove that the children of Israel of the Assyrian deportations are indeed the Germanic peoples of modern history. Isaiah chapter 49 contains many similar statements that we shall also see here in the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, recorded in Matthew chapter 5. Isaiah 49.1 Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from far. Yahweh has called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother he has made mention of my name. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand has he hid me, and made me a polished shaft in his quiver as he hid me. 
And he said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Isaiah speaking for the nation. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for naught and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with Yahweh and my work with God. And now saith Yahweh that formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God shall be my strength. And he said, It is a light thing that thou should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to restore the preserved of Israel. Sounds like he's talking about Christ. I will also give thee for a light to the nations, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. The Universalists love this verse. But Isaiah chapter 66 defines these nations that were to receive that light. Where it says in verse 19, speaking about the dispersed of Israel, And I will set a sign among them, the light, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, Pul, and Lud that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off, that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. The children of Israel, as we see here, were to declare the glory of their God among the nations. Tarshish, Genesis chapter 10, is the Jephthite nation in modern Spain, the district known as Tartessus at this time. Pol is a word for Assyria. After their king at the time, Pol, the king of Assyria, is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 15 and 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Lud is Lydia in Anatolia, from whom the Etruscans of Italy also descended. Tubal is one of the Jephthah tribes inhabiting the region around the Black Sea at this time. Javan, they are the Jephthite Ionian Greeks. The Ionians were known to the Persians as Yavana, and that's what they're known to the Hebrews as. There's no doubt that Javan is Yavan, the Yavana of the Persian inscriptions. Wherever the Yavana appear, historians understand it as the Ionian Greeks being spoken of. Yavana in the Septuagint is Iowan. Very close to Ionian. The Ionians, too, had many colonies around the Black Sea and through the Danube River Valley. And as far west as Marseille, a city, the city on the coast, the Mediterranean coast of France, which was settled by the Phokians, a tribe of Ionians from Phokis, the district in Greece. These are the nations which Israel was to be a light to. And they are all Genesis 10 white Adamic nations. This is the context supplied by Isaiah. This is the region of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles, of Matthew chapter 4. There is no universalism in the Bible once it is read in context. 
Not 200 years after the deportations during which Isaiah wrote, the children of Israel showed up in all of these places, from the Black Sea all the way to Iberia, which is modern Spain, and they were called Chimerians and Saxons. Isaiah 49, chapter 7. Thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thus saith Yahweh, in an acceptable time have I heard thee, and in a day of salvation have I helped thee, Paul quoted this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in relation to the children of Israel, of course, the Dorian Greeks of Corinth being of an earlier dispersion of the Israelites. And I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth to cause to inherit the desolate heritages that thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth to them that are in darkness, show yourselves, that thou mayest say to the prisoners, go forth, that thou mayest say to them that are in darkness, show yourselves. So now we see the people sitting in darkness are the people of that circuit of the nations where the Israelites were dispersed. The prisoners are the Israelites of the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities and nobody else. They shall feed in the ways, and their pasture shall be in all high places. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither shall the heat nor the sun smite them, for he that has mercy on them shall lead them. Even by the springs of water shall he guide them. He who is the fountain of living water, says at Revelation 7.16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, Neither shall the sunlight on them nor any heat. Very similar language made to the same people about the same people. The Bible and the Word of God do not change. And I will make all my ways, I'm sorry, I will make all my mountains away and my highways shall be exalted. Behold, these shall come from afar and lo, these from the north and from the west and these from the land of Sinem. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains. For Yahweh has comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. He's not talking about anybody here except the children of Israel. But Zion said, Yahweh hath forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her suckling child? that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yeah, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee. Yahweh will not forget Israel. Nobody else is considered in Scripture. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. 
Thy children shall make haste, thy destroyers, and they that made thee waste shall go forth of thee. Lift up thine eyes round about, and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to thee. As I live, saith Yahweh, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them, clothe thee with them all as with an ornament, and bind them on thee as a bride does. For thy waste and thy desolate places in the land of thy destruction shall even now be too narrow by reason of the inhabitants. And they that swallow thee up shall be far away. Meaning that the people who took Israel into captivity will be belittled. And the Assyrians and the Babylonians were belittled within a hundred years. The children which thou shalt have after thou hast lost the other. In other words, subsequent generations and subsequent nations and colonies shall say again in thine ears, the place is too straight for me, give me place that I may dwell. This is talking about the nations which eventually descended from the children of Israel, that they would keep spreading out into the world. It describes the Saxon peoples and their history of the last 2,500 years through the colonial period of the Middle Ages. Verse 21, Then shalt thou say in thine heart, Who has begotten me these? Seeing I have lost my children, and am desolate, a captive, and removing to and fro. And who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. These, where had they been? This describes the blindness of Israel. We know not where we came from. The day we discover it, our people will ask, how did this happen? This blindness was one of the punishments of our disobedience. Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. Verse 22. Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the nations and set up my standard to the people, and they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. We see that these children of Israel were to go to Europe. Isaiah 66 demonstrates that they would be scattered across Europe. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and their queens thy nursing mothers. They shall bow down to thee with their face toward the earth, and lick up the dust of thy feet. And thou shalt know that I am Yahweh, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty, or the lawful captive delivered? But thus saith Yahweh, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contends with thee, and I will save thy children. The mighty and the kings are those of the old Adamic world in Mesopotamia and in Europe, which the children of Israel would come to rule over which is exactly what happened when the Germanic tribes from the Assyrian deportations came into Europe. And I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh, and they shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine, and all flesh shall know that I am Yahweh, thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob.
Isaiah defines the language used in Matthew and vice versa. When we read Isaiah, for instance, verse 66, I'm sorry, verse 19 in chapter 66, that then we see the region of the nations, that Galilee of the nations of, of Matthew defined. When we read Matthew and turn to Isaiah, Matthew makes sense. The Jews have convinced mainstream Judeo-Christians to throw away the Old Testament that it doesn't apply to them. There's no way you could understand the New Testament without understanding the Old. The Jewish persuasion of Christians to disregard the Old Testament allows the Jews to maintain their false identity. They are not the people of the book. With this, Matthew 5, verse 1. And seeing the crowds, he, meaning Yahshua, went up into the mountain. And upon his sitting, his students came to him. And opening his mouth, he instructed them, saying, and I'll leave it here, I have a page of notes. First, we, we have to take note that whenever Christ taught with before crowds of people, well, well, there are instances where he had to actually get out onto a boat, onto the lake, because there were so many people on the shore that he couldn't even stand. He would have been pushed into the water, that there was such a large crowd. Well, well, this isn't the case here. He's sitting on the mountain, and his students came to him. So, so what I envision here is more than likely only a small group of, of people, probably the, the core apostles and, and maybe a few others. But it seems to me like there's only a small group of people here in the Sermon of the Mount and not the massive crowds that come to follow him a little later in his ministries. All of these words are instructions for, as we see in verse 1, his students. It cannot be imagined that these words can ever apply to his enemies or to the ungodly. There are plenty of other scriptures which command his students concerning the ungodly to have nothing at all to do with them. If one is trying to explain the gospel to aliens or to non-Adamic peoples, one errs from the very beginning imagining that aliens can possibly receive the gospel in the first place. Paul says at 1 Corinthians, verse 18, chapter 1, For the account of the cross is folly to those who are going to die. But to us who are being preserved, to us it is the power of Yahweh. As we just saw in Isaiah 49, Yahweh is explicitly the Savior of Israel Nobody else ever has that promise in the prophets. According to all Old Testament scripture, the saved include only the children of Israel. And Yahweh says in Amos chapter 3, speaking of the children of Israel in verse 1, verses 1 and 2, Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You 
only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all of your iniquities. Can two walk together except they be agreed? If we agree not with the words of our God, we cannot walk with him. The Bible promises destruction to all of the enemies of Yahweh our God. By our trying to somehow save them as if that were possible, we even set ourselves in opposition to God. The purpose of Christ's ministry is recorded in Luke chapter 4, where he himself quotes from these very, from these very same chapters of Isaiah. Actually, I think it's chapter um, 61. And, that he's, and, and a, one line from chapter 58, I believe, that he's quoting from where he says at Luke 4.16, well, where it says, And he came to Nazareth, speaking of Joshua, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the assembly hall on the Sabbath day and stood up to be read. He stood up to read. Verse 17. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So we see the poor as defined in Isaiah chapter 49 and in Luke chapter 4 applies only to the children of Israel. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the captives, this is very plain in the whole context of the Bible, the captives of those Israelites, the Israelites who were described as prisoners and captives in Isaiah 49, those Israelites who were taken off into captivity. We can't imagine this to be referring to anybody else. The Bible defines who the prisoners and who the captives are, and Christ says that's who he came for. And recovering sight to the blind, he came to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. If we would only open our eyes to the meaning of the Bible, our blindness, the scales would fall away, we would know that we are Israel because we fulfilled all the prophecies that have to do with Israel. To set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of Yahweh. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue or in the assembly hall were fastened on him. As he began to say unto them, this day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Note that he stopped before proclaiming in the rest of that chapter of Isaiah, the day of vengeance, which has only to do with his second advent. And not his first. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And we have just seen Christ quote elsewhere from Isaiah that he was sent to preach the gospel to the poor, meaning the dispersion of Israel. Isaiah 66.1 says, Thus saith Yahweh, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is this house that ye build unto me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things has my hand made, and all those things have been, saith Yahweh. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. This message is to those of a poor and contrite spirit who are Israelites. You have to be an Israelite first. And then you have to have a contrite and humble heart. But the Israelite part has to come first. Verse 4. Blessed are those who are mourning, because they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, because they shall inherit the earth. Let me quote Isaiah 60, verse 16. Thou shalt also suck the milk of the nations, and shalt suck the breast of kings. And thou shalt know that I, Yahweh, am thy Savior, and thy Redeemer. Speaking to Israel. The Mighty One of Jacob. And verse 21. Thy people also shall all be righteous. This is speaking to Israel. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, Yahweh, will hasten it in his time. The humble, the meek, the poor in spirit, they've already been chosen out by God. We, in our fleshly wisdom, we only see a small piece of history. We only see the people of the world through the the small lens that we're given for a short time. Yahweh has chosen out the humble. Yahweh has chosen out the poor of spirit. And he chose them out thousands of years ago. Well, probably millions of years ago. Probably in an immeasurable time period. But they were chosen out a long time ago. And they are already chosen. He knew who he was choosing. Psalm 25, verse 11. For thy name's sake, O Yahweh, pardon mine iniquity, for it is great. What man is he that feareth Yahweh? Him shall he teach in the way that he shall choose. His soul shall dwell at ease, and his seed shall inherit the earth. The secret of Yahweh is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. The biblical biblical context 
is that those who are meek are of the children of Israel. You have to be an Israelite first, and then you have to be meek. Because only the children of Israel have the covenants in order that they be shown. They shall inherit the earth, and not simply anyone who is acting meekly. Psalm 37, verse 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon Yahweh, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. Yeah, thou shalt diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The wicked plotteth against the just, and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. The Communist Manifesto, the wicked plotteth against the just. The Protocols of the so-called Learned Elders of Zion, the wicked plotteth against the just. The Jewish trash spewing daily from the mainstream media, this is how the wicked plotteth against the just. Psalm 37, verse 18. Yahweh knoweth the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. They shall not be ashamed in the evil time, and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of Yahweh shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke, they shall consume away. The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. For such as be blessed of him shall inherit the earth, and they that be cursed of him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by Yahweh, and he delights in his way. Though he fails, he shall not be utterly cast down. Good men can sin, right? For Yahweh upholds him with his hand. But it is he whom Yahweh considers upright who shall be blessed and not who appears to be upright in the eyes of men. Verse 6. Blessed are those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they shall be satiated. Isaiah 49.10. They shall not hunger nor thirst, neither shall the heat nor sun smite them, for he has mercy on them, for he that has mercy on them shall lead them, even by the springs of water shall he guide them. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well, who was almost certainly an Israelite. She claimed to have Jacob for her father, and Yahshua did not deny that. She was only a Samaritan by geography. She was surely an Israelite. She said that she waited for the Messiah to teach her all things. He said that whoever drinks the water that he gives them shall never thirst again. Ezekiel chapter 34, at the end of the prophecy concerning the lost sheep, 
because that's what Ezekiel 34 is all about. And I will raise up for them, meaning Israel, a plant of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the heathen any more. Thus shall they know that I, Yahweh their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people. That defines the people who are hungering and thirsting. Blessed are those hungering and thirsting for righteousness, because they shall be satiated. And ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, Adam, and I am your God, saith Yahweh God. Isaiah chapter 65 compares the obedient children of Israel to those among us who are disobedient and who associate with and oblige the enemies of our God. So I certainly wouldn't want to go on blog talk and preach to Negroes. Isaiah 65, 9. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah an inheritor of my mountains. And mine elect shall inherit it, and my servant shall dwell there. And Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for the herds to lie down in for my people that have sought me. But ye are they that forsake Yahweh, that forget my holy mountain, that prepare a table for that troop, and that furnish the drink offering unto that number, meaning the enemies of God. Therefore will I number you to the sword, and ye shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, ye did not answer. When I spake, ye did not hear, but did evil before mine eyes, and did choose that wherein I delighted not. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but ye shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but ye shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but ye shall be ashamed. As Daniel says in chapter 12, many of us who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. But every Israelite is found written in a book of life and shall be delivered. Some of us just won't like it. Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are those having mercy, because they shall be mercied, or granted mercy. Proverbs, chapter 14, verse 20. The poor is hated even of his own neighbor, but the rich has many friends. He that despises his neighbor sins, but he that has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Do they not err that devise evil? But mercy and truth shall be to them that devise good. He that oppresses the poor reproaches his maker. But he that honors him has mercy on the poor. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 20. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise. But a foolish man spends it up. He that follows after righteousness and mercy finds life, righteousness, and honor. Hosea 6.6, 6, a passage quoted by Christ in his gospel. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, 
and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Hosea reflects the same thing that's uttered in Proverbs. So we see that mercy for our brother was something which Yahweh asked us of in the Old Testament as well as the New. And mercy not only on them who may do us wrong, but also mercy on those of humble means. An example of this is found in the Exodus. When Moses encountered two Israelite men quarreling, Exodus chapter 2, and it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown, that he went out into his, unto his brethren and looked on their burdens, and he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. And he said to him that did the wrong, why do you smite your fellow? And he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. There was no care for the Egyptian, and the Egyptian was probably an Adamite. Yet Moses was astonished when he found two men of Israel quarreling with each other, knowing that it was wrong for them to be doing that. Because Moses understood that it was wrong for these Israelite men to be quarreling with each other and risked his own life for those men. Because Moses understood this difference, caring for Israel and not for the alien, he came to be the leader over all of the children of Israel, chosen to bring them out of the captivity of Egypt. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, because they shall see Yahweh. Psalm 24, verse 4. He that has clean... I'm sorry, I cut my microphone off. That was silly. We see that mercy for our brother was something which Yahweh asked us of 
asked of us in the Old Testament as well as the New. And mercy not only on them who may do us wrong, but also on those who are of humble means. An example of this is found in the Exodus, when Moses encountered two Israelite men who were quarreling with each other. I'll read Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. And it came to pass in those days, when Moses was grown, that he went out unto his brethren and looked on their burdens. And he spied an Egyptian smiting a Hebrew, one of his brethren. And he looked this way and that way. And when he saw that there was no man, he slew the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the second day, behold, two men of the Hebrews strove together. They were fighting with each other. And he said to him that did the wrong, why do you smite your fellow? And he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you intend to kill me just as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses feared and said, surely this thing is known. Moses is killing of the Egyptian. There was no care for the Egyptian, and that Egyptian was certainly an Adamite. Yet Moses was astonished when he saw two men of Israel quarreling with each other, knowing that it was wrong for them to be doing so. Because Moses understood this difference, caring for Israel and not for the alien, he was appointed the leader over all the children of Israel to bring them out of the captivity in Egypt. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, because they shall see Yahweh. Psalm 24.4 He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from Yahweh, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Of course, the psalmist is only talking about the children of Israel. Psalm 73.1 Truly, God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. You can't be an outsider and claim to have a pure heart and expect to see Yahweh. The context of the Bible states that you must be an Israelite first and then have a pure heart and you can expect to see Yahweh. The Bible does not change and these verses do not contradict each other they complement each other. Matthew 5, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, because they shall be called sons of Yahweh. I will read Proverbs chapter 10, verse 10 from the Septuagint, because it makes a lot more sense than the King James Version. He that winks with his eyes deceitfully procures griefs for men. But he that reproves boldly is a peacemaker. What is a peacemaker? Is it a man who placates others, whether they be aliens or Israelites? That man's not a peacemaker. A peacemaker 
is something quite different in the eyes of God. God is not pleased with placators. That is the folly of man's judgment. Rather, the proverb says that he who reproves is a peacemaker. And it is fully evident that that reproof must be according to the word of God. Surely, Yahweh does not want us to make peace with his enemies. Deuteronomy 23, 6 says, Thou shalt not seek their peace nor their prosperity all thy days forever. Forever. Ezra 9, 12 says, Now therefore give not your daughters unto their sons, neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for inheritance to your children forever. Therefore, a real peacemaker is not found on blog talk radio dancing with wolves or arguing with Negroes. A real peacemaker makes peace with God by reproving and insisting that we be obedient to his word in deed, in action, and not merely with lip service. Here are the blessings of obedience from Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of Yahweh thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that Yahweh thy God will set thee on high above all nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, meaning your children, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kine, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be thy basket and thy store. Blessed shall be thou when thou comest in, and blessed shall be thou when thou goest out. Yahweh shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. Yahweh shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand unto, and he shall bless thee in the land which Yahweh thy God gives thee. Yahweh shall establish thee, shall establish thee a holy people unto himself as he has sworn to thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of Yahweh thy God and walk in his ways. And all people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of Yahweh, and they shall be afraid of thee. And Yahweh shall make thee plenteous in goods, in the fruit of thy body, and in the fruit of thy cattle, and in the fruit of thy ground, and in the land which Yahweh swear unto thy fathers to give thee. Yahweh shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto the land in his season, and to bless all the work of thine hand, and thou shalt render many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And Yahweh shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of Yahweh thy God, which I command thee to stay, to observe, and to do them, 
And thou shalt not go aside from any of the words which I command thee this day to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. For Christians, the only real peace is found in obedience to our God. That is what you must pursue if you want to consider yourself a peacemaker. A peacemaker is not simply a reconciler or a placator of men, period. Today, in our disobedience, we are overrun with the enemies of our God. For Christians, the only real peace is found in obedience, and he will see that the enemies are removed. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted on account of righteousness, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they would reproach you and persecute you and being liars, they would speak any evil against you on account of me. Rejoice and exult, because great is your reward in the heavens, for thusly they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I think he's talking about Martin Winstead. Isaiah 51, 7. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be afraid of their revilings. Paul in Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of those who in ancient days went against the mainstream and sought obedience to the God, Paul explains thus, 1136, And others received trials of mockings and scourgings, then further of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were cut in pieces, having died by slaughter of the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being in want, being afflicted, being mistreated, of whom the society was not worthy, wandering upon deserts and mountains and in caves and in the holes of the earth, and all being accredited through the faith, have not acquired the promise of Yahweh, foreseeing for us something better, that not apart from us should they be perfected. In other words, those men of old had not acquired that promise in the flesh, but they will together with us in the last day. Matthew 5, verse 13. You were the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? It avails for nothing more than it is cast outside to be trampled by men. Let me read Leviticus 2.13. And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Salt was very expensive in the ancient world because it was used as a preservative for food, for cheese, for meat. Numbers, chapter 18, verse 19. All the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to Yahweh have I given thee, and thy sons and thy daughters with thee by a statute forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before Yahweh, unto thee and unto thy seed with thee. 
True Chronicles, chapter 13, verse 5. Ought ye not to know that Yahweh God of Israel gave the kingdom over to Israel to da- over Israel to David forever, even to him and to his sons by a covenant of salt? Salt had a place in the ritual sacrifices, as we have just seen in Leviticus and Numbers. And the covenant of salt seems to me to represent exactly what salt was used for by our ancestors in the ancient world. Preservation. Where Christ says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the preservation of the earth, would not be out of context. If it were not for the children of Israel, Yahweh would have long ago destroyed the earth on account of its depravity. Matthew 5, verse 14. You are the light of the society. A city sitting upon a mountain is not able to be hidden. Neither do they ignite a lamp and set it under a basket. In other words, Yahweh never really hid his people. He hid his people in Maine. He hid his people in their identity from the society, but he never really hid them. Neither do they ignite a lamp and set it under a basket, but upon a lampstand, and it gives light for all those in thine house. Thusly you must give your light before men, that they may see your good works, and they may honor your Father who is in the heavens. From John chapter 1, verses 4 through 7, in chapter 8, verse 12, and elsewhere, we learn that Yahshua is the light come into society. In his absence, those who carry his word become that light also. This is the light of Isaiah, the light of Isaiah 9-1, the light of Isaiah 42-8, by which the nations of Israel were to be illuminated. Yet there is another interesting correlation here where Yahshua says, you are the light of the world. The ancient city, Beth Shemesh, I'll use as an example, in Egypt meant house of the sun. Shemesh meaning sun in Hebrew. And it was called Heliopolis, or city of the sun by the Greeks. The Hebrew word Shemesh may mean sun. There's another word for sun. But it is also a double entendre, for it may also mean, as a contraction for Shem and Ish, the people of Shem. Ever since the days of Noah, it was the descendants of Shem who were chosen out to carry forth God's will in the earth. And the offspring were narrowed down from there to focus on the seed of Abraham and Jacob after him. A shining city on a hill cannot be hidden. Upon the acceptance of the word of God and the break from tyranny found at the time of the Reformation, the white Christian nations of the world have made many marvelous accomplishments as Christian nations. By this alone we should know that we are indeed the people of God. And this is exactly what is described in Revelation chapters 10 and 11 and Daniel chapter 7. When our nations, white nations, act in harmony... It doesn't have to be perfect as long as we act morally and in harmony generally with the word of God. We indeed shine that light quite brightly.
Matthew 5, verse 17. You should not believe that I have come to dismiss the law or the prophets. I have not come to dismiss, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth would pass, by no means should one iota or one stroke pass from the law until all things should happen. Indeed, he who may break the least of one of these commandments and teach men as much, he shall be called least in the kingdom of heavens, of the heavens. But he who should do so and who should teach, he shall be called great in the kingdom of the heavens. For I say to you that unless your righteousness abounds beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, by no means shall you enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Let me say that the scribes and the Pharisees were righteous in pretense only, and, and Matthew 23 proves that beyond all doubt. The scribes and the Pharisees, it, it's not so hard as it seems to exceed their righteousness. As Christians and as Israelites, which are actually racial terms and which should be synonymous, we should know that while we are not going to be judged by the law, we're going to be judged by mercy because we're all guilty under the law. Even though we are not going to be judged by the law, we should all the more have a desire to establish the law. For that reason, Paul, explaining this very thing, wrote in Romans chapter 3, Do we then nullify the law by faith? Certainly not. Rather, we establish the law. We should seek to establish our lives in the pattern of the law of God and to encourage others to do so. Matthew 5, verse 21. You have heard that it had been said to the ancients, you shall not murder. And he who would murder shall be subject to judgment. But I say to you that each being angry with his brother shall be subject to judgment. He who would say to his brother, worthless, shall be subject to the council. But he who would say, stupid, shall be subject to Gehenna for the fire. Therefore, if you would offer your gift upon the altar, and there you should remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, you must be reconciled to your brother. And then coming, offer your gift. You must quickly be on good terms with your opponent, even while you are with him in the road, lest the opponent hand you over to the judge and the judge to the deputy, and you would be cast into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out from there until when you would repay the last cent. Gehenna, in, this, in, in these verses, does not represent what the later Romish church portrayed as hell, or purgatory, or whatever mood they were in at the time. Rather, Gehenna represents the fire of trials in this life, as described in 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2 Peter chapter 3, and also to some extent in Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here Christ declares that we should love our brethren 
above all things. Yahweh proclaimed in Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, and also at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 10, that he showed mercy unto him that loves him and keeps his commandments. At Deuteronomy chapter 7, we read in verse 9, Know therefore that Yahweh thy God, he is God, the faithful God which keeps covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays them that hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hates him. He will repay him to his face. At Deuteronomy 11.1 it says, Therefore thou shalt love Yahweh thy God and keep his charge and his statutes and his judgments and his commandments always. At John 14, verse 15, we see Christ proclaim, If you love me, keep my commandments. And at John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Therefore, the commandments of Christ are one and the same as those of that God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, who is Christ, although many so-called churches follow the Jews in denial of that fact. John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love one for another. John fifteen twelve. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John fifteen seventeen. These things I command you, that you love one another. This instruction to love our brother is termed by Christ a new commandment, but only because it was never actually explicit in the law. However, in the Old Testament, it was indeed expected of men. As we have seen already here from Exodus chapter 2, that Moses was astonished to see two Israelite men quarreling with each other. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am Yahweh. So we see these, that this Sermon on the Mount, even though a lot of these things were not stressed throughout the Old Testament, they certainly are there. There is nothing new under the sun. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it has been said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that each who beholds a woman for the lust for which to lust after her, has already committed adultery in his heart. Now if your right eye entraps you, take it out and cast it from you, for it is better for you that one of your members would be lost, and your whole body not be cast into Gehenna. Gehenna was the place where the people of Judea burned their trash in this period. It was used for much more wicked things 
such as passing children through the fire and other pagan rituals in Old Testament times. Verse 30. And if your right hand entraps you, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is better for you that one of your members would be lost and your whole body not depart into Gehenna. It is clear, even from the Ten Commandments, as they were given in Exodus chapter 20, that adultery to the Hebrews meant race mixing. Here the word for adultery comes from a Greek word, moikuo. While it is indeed related to the verb mignumi, which means to mix, the Greeks did not use the word in the racial sense. Rather, they used it to describe any possible confusion of the bloodline, which would possibly result in children belonging to men other than their fathers. That's what the Greeks considered to be adultery. Yet, moikuo was the word which Hebrews writing Greek chose to use for the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, from as early as the translation of the Septuagint. The word reflected the literal meaning of the Hebrew, but it did not reflect the colloquial meaning in Greek. For that reason, the apostles in Acts chapter 15 decided that it was necessary to add an injunction prohibiting fornication, since the Greeks did understand race mixing to be a form of fornication or illicit sexual relations. Again, Gehenna is not what the Romish church later described as hell, but rather, he who sins in this life is punished in the body. As Christ says here, it is the body, not the spirit, which shall be thrown into the fire of Gehenna. While it is manifestly clear that Yahweh being God can indeed destroy the spirit of men also, his promise to us is that our spirits shall be preserved. Therefore, Paul says of unrepentant sinners, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, speaking of a fornicator, Paul says, to deliver such a one unto Satan, which is the adversary in this world, the devil's walking around in shoe leather, to deliver such a one unto the adversary for destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Joshua. Paul also discusses that eternal struggle between the desires of the flesh and this, the necessity for obedience to God. So when you lust after a woman, you can be considered to have committed adultery in your heart. Joshua is not explaining that that's a breaking of the law. Not quite but it's already that you have evil on your mind. That's what he's explaining. As John explains the, um, the, the steps to sin, that the lust comes first, but the sin occurs when the lust is actually acted on. Men must know that even if we fail, 
that the law is good, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, and that we must still strive to live up to it. However, with the law, all men are condemned. So we must have mercy upon our brethren who fall short even beyond where we may have fallen, but all men sin. He who says he does not sin makes God a liar, as John explains in his first epistle. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. And it has been said that he who would put away his wife must give to her a bill of divorce. Now I say to you that each who puts away his wife, except for reason of fornication, makes her to commit adultery. And he who would marry a divorced woman commits adultery. Putting away a wife is the act of divorce. The bill of divorce only officiates the act. And it was instituted in the days of Moses in order to protect women who were put off by their husbands. That is because a married woman found in the house of another man would have no defense against the charge of adultery. Both her and the other man could be stoned to death under the Hebrew law. However, if that woman could display a bill of divorcement, no such charge could hold, so the risk was diminished. This law appears in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Today, many men fail, even men in Israel identity, because they confuse the act of the issuing of, of a bill of divorcement with the actual divorce. That is a modern precept which finds no place in Scripture. Here we see that it is clear that putting away, the putting away of one's wife is the act of divorce. And the issuing of the bill of divorcement only officiates the act. If one puts away his wife without issuing the bill, then one violates the law of divorcement. However, the wife has still been put away. Those who would deny this are practicing the midrash and not obedience to the scripture. There are a lot of men who contend over this. Senselessly. The act of putting away a wife, that is the act of divorce. The signing of the bill of divorcement is only an officiation of it, a record of it. The record, the making of a record, is not the doing of the act. Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again you have heard that it has been said to the ancients, You shall not swear falsely. And you shall make atonement for your oaths to Yahweh. Now I say to you not to swear at all, not by the heaven, because it is the throne of Yahweh, nor by the earth, because it is a footstool for his feet, nor upon Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Nor should you swear by your head, because you are not able to make one hair white or black. Now your word must be yeah, yeah, no, no, and what is in excess of these is from of evil.
or with evil intentions. Oaths were taken very seriously in the ancient world, and rituals were fulfilled in order to officiate the oath. The ritual conducted in Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham split a certain animal in half, he split certain animals in half, and the essence of Yahweh passed between the animals. That was one such ritual which officiated an oath, and there are Mesopotamian inscriptions revealing that very ritual to have been a custom of the people at that time. When a man passed through the parts of the dead animal, he was agreeing that if he failed to live up to the oath, that it would be with him as it was with the animal. That's the importance of Genesis 15 in the scope of the promises to Abraham. If you go back and read that, you will find that Yahweh passed through the parts of the animal, but Abraham didn't have to do anything. Abraham's seed don't have to do anything to be saved. The promise is all on Yahweh's shoulders. Man can't do anything to save himself. However, swearing oaths to men, one must compromise one's allegiance to God. Therefore, Christians should not swear oaths at all. At James 5.12, the apostle wrote, But before all, my brethren, do not swear, not even on heaven, nor on the earth, nor any other oath. But it must be from you, the yes must be yes, and the no, no, in order that you would not fall under judgment. For this reason, Christians for many centuries refused to consider contracts or allegiances Rather, Christians conducted all of their business on a handshake and on their word, where yes was yes and no was no. Contracts came back into Christian life with the advent of Jewish, Jewish usury. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it has been said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now I say to you, not to oppose evil, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn for him the other also. And to him desiring for you to be judged and to receive your cloak, give up to him also your shirt. And whoever shall press you for one mile, go with him too. Giving, give to him asking you, and you should not turn away from him wishing to borrow from you. Now, as I, I believe was demonstrated at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, these instructions are only for Israelites to Israelites. We should use them as a guide by which to govern our relations with our Israelite brethren. These have nothing to do with strangers. These have nothing to do with the enemies of our God. We must resist them. Here, as always throughout this discourse, the subject of the conversation is still the students of Christ and the children of Israel. Since both the exacting of vengeance and the distribution of reward belong to our God, Christians 
should not take such things upon themselves. Yet rarely in history have we shown such faith. If we believed God's word, we would never seek vengeance against the brother, either by suit or by violence. If we believed God's word, we would act on it and leave vengeance to Yahweh. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it has been said, you shall love him near to you, or you shall love your neighbor, right? And you shall hate your enemy. Now I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those persecuting you. Yahshua is speaking about your enemies and not his enemies. That you may be sons of your Father who is in the heavens, because his Son rises upon evil and good and reigns upon righteous and unrighteous. For if you should love those loving you, what reward do you have? Do not also the tax collectors do the same. And if you should greet your brethren only, what do you do that is extraordinary? Do not also the heathens do the same. Therefore you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, Christ did not greet Herod, nor even say a word to him. Here again, Yahshua is talking about our personal Israelite enemies, the discourse being to and about the children of Israel. He is not talking about his enemies, the enemies of our God. David made the enemies of God his own enemies, knowing that they could ne never be pleasing to God. David was a man after God's own heart, Acts chapter 13, verse 22. Psalm 8, verse 2. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger, or quiet the enemy and the avenger. Psalm 92, verse 9. For lo, thine enemies, O Yahweh, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered, but my horn shall thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Mine eye also shall see my desire on mine enemies, and mine ears shall hear my desire of the wicked that shall rise up against me. David is making Yahweh's enemies his enemies. Psalm 139, verse 21. Do I not hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? I hate them with a perfect hatred and count them mine enemies. But David prayed, and I didn't pull any examples, but David prayed even for Saul when Saul was trying to kill him. David did not want to see Saul die. David prayed for his Israelite enemies and hated the enemies of Yahweh, that is the difference. The enemies of God, Christians must expect God to keep from us so long as we are willing to be obedient to his will. Yet they are not the subject here. Our personal Israelite enemies, those of our own race who wrong us, those we must be merciful with as our Father is merciful to us. And we should be kind 
towards all Israelites and towards all Adamic men, and not only with those who are our friends or our kin or whom we happen to be acquainted with. The phrase, him near to you, translated into King James's neighbor. I render this word very literally from the Greek term from which it comes. The word neighbor in the King James implies a person who is near, and our ancient ancestors did not conceive of that, including aliens or outsiders under normal circumstances. People did not live in mixed neighborhoods. The word is placeion. The King James always translates placeion as neighbor. It's both an adverb and, and a preposition in its nominative form. It's used as a substantive in the King James to describe a neighbor or one near to you. There are other words in Greek which mean near, which are used of neighbors, and, and they are pelis or, or um, perioikos, which is those dwelling around, and, and that, that word is used in Luke 14 and, and Luke 15 and John chapter 9, verse 8. We find the word perioikos. Now, a perioikos can be anybody who dwells around you. And it could be demonstrated that in Palestine, it, it could be demonstrated in history that in Palestine and throughout the Oikumene, or the Greco-Roman world, one's neighbor was and was expected to be of one's own tribe. And that this is the true meaning of tone placeion, this word placeion, which the AV, which the King James simply translates neighbor, can be demonstrated. There's another word that's translated neighbor, and it's gaitone, and that's somebody that's in your vicinity. And the King James does not distinguish these three words, gaitone, perioikos, and placeion. A gaitone or a perioikos can be what we conceive of as a neighbor, but a placeion has a stronger meaning. First, let me say it, Acts, 7, Acts chapter 7, verse 27, which is the account of that same story that I had repeated earlier from the Exodus, chapter 2, about Moses killing the Egyptian and trying to break up the argument between the two Israelites. At Acts chapter 7, verse 27, we see that one Israelite is referred to as Tone Placeon, the neighbor in the King James, in relation to the other Israelite. But the Israelites are certainly not considered tone placeion in reference to the Egyptian. And Moses, as it is evident in the account, Moses could not have known that these men lived near one another, just like he couldn't have known where the Egyptian actually lived. 
So the word placeion, as it is used in Acts chapter 7, describing this event, the word cannot simply mean somebody who lives near the person in question. It simply can't be taken to mean that. The way it's used in Acts chapter 7, it would be quite ridiculous if that was what it was taken to mean. Because Moses simply could not have known those things. Again, at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Yahshua is credited with saying the words, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, which is tone placeion, that word placeion again, and hate thine enemy. Now what meaning would that saying have if your enemy, as is often the case, lived in the house next door. It would make no sense whatsoever. So it should be evident that tone placeion, a placeion is somebody near to you in another sense, but not necessarily geographically. One near to you in relationship is much more likely the case, at least someone who's closer to you in relationship than the average stranger. The Hebrew word in the original where the quote is taken from in Leviticus 19.18 the Hebrew word is Strong's number 7453 and it means an associate more or less close. So we see that the word simply doesn't mean a neighbor as someone who happens to live next door. It's from another Hebrew word. The root word is 7462. Strong's lists the King James translations of the word at various times as brother, companion, fellow, friend, husband, neighbor, or even a lover. So it can't describe simply somebody that lives next door or nearby. The root word is defined by Strong in his concordance as follows. To tend a flock. To pasture it. This is Strong's number 7462. Intransitively, it means to graze, or to rule, or to associate with somebody as a friend. So it seems to me that a placeion, or a neighbor in the New Testament, can only be, if the word comes from a word meaning to graze, it can only be used of a fellow sheep. The bounds of proper Christian association are set at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Christ has no concord or agreement with Belial. There is no concord or agreement with the ungodly or for those without or outside of the faith. There is no concord or agreement with the children of darkness and no government of man forcing racial integration 
can ever change that. Your neighbor is not simply somebody who lives next door. He has to be your fellow Christian Israelite. That's Matthew chapter 5. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with Matthew chapter 6. I don't know if I'll be on I'll be on the road all weekend. I won't be home till Tuesday. I don't think there'll be a Monday night forum program. I think I'll just pass on it and, and schedule it for next week. Praise Yahweh and thank you, and good night.